With November almost upon us, a tumultuous year is building up to a dramatic crescendo. The local government election on the 1st of November promises to alter South Africa's political landscape. The finance minister Enoch Gordongwana delivers his debut midterm budget and the eyes of the world will be on Glasgow from the 31st of October as leaders gather to tackle the existential threat of climate change. This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends, moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. Welcome, I'm Jeremy Max. Now, the finance minister Enoch Gordongwana took over from Tito Mbaweni at a time of great uncertainty. Economic growth is plodding back to lackluster pre-COVID levels. Unemployment has hit a record high and investor confidence is muted at best. I'll ask Investec Chief Economist Annabel Bishop whether the minister can navigate these choppy waters and steer the national economy onto a more promising course. Then, with many of our municipalities on the verge of collapse as a result of weak administration, local economies are suffering the brunt of poor service delivery and joblessness. I'll ask political commentator Dr. Somododo Fekeni what is needed to turn around a seemingly intractable situation. And finally, are you copped out? Too much information? Well, Investec Global Head of Sustainability, Tanya Dos Santos, will break down what you need to know about the world's biggest gathering on climate change. But let's start right here at home, as Finance Minister Enoch Godongwana prepares to deliver his first official pronouncement on our country's finances. At a recent conference hosted by the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, the minister hinted at his priorities. At the moment, we've got the medium-term budget policy statement. The key issues we need to be talking about are the structural reforms. And I think even there, there's general consensus on one thousand on those structural reforms. The key question, how do we mobilize our forces and jointly achieve those structural reforms? So that's the minister speaking just a few days ago. I'm joined now by Investec Chief Economist Annabel Bishop. Annabel, the minister then stressing the importance of achieving structural reform, but it might not all be possible at the same time. I guess, what would the priorities be? Yes, hi, Jeremy. Look, I think um, this this MTBPS is quite eagerly um, awaited because, as you know, we have a new finance minister, Minister Gondwana. I think he's, he's you know, certainly inherited some things a little bit easier and some things a little bit more difficult. And of course, you know, you ask um, in terms of the structural reforms, I think it's also a refrain that Tito Mbueni has been um, saying as well, quite substantially in his tenure, but also, of course, as well, Lesetia Kenyaga. And obviously, what's important there is that, you know, people look at the Reserve Bank for lower interest rates to solve the economic growth problems, if you will. But of course, you know, we're talking here about structural reforms, whether it's obviously, you know, the ongoing repair at Eskom and obviously speaking it up, increasing the private sector power generation allowance, but also, of course, as well, the rest of the SOEs, the state-owned institutions, the government infrastructure fund. But, you know, quite interestingly as well, on the interest rate front, we're also looking to this budget to see what it's going to mean for the credit rating agencies, because the recent upward revision to GDP certainly pushes through lower ratios on a debt and deficit side. And, of course, that would seem to you and I that then means that we're not going to get 
credit rating downgrades come the November set of reviews from Moody's, Fitch and S&P. But of course, you know, uh, Fitch recently putting out quite a negative view on South Africa. So I think quite a few risks, but obviously in terms of structural reforms, it's not the remit of National Treasury to actually affect the structural reforms to do them. It's of course, they only are responsible for collecting revenue and dispersing it. It's obviously um, what the individual departments will need to do. What specific signals then would the ratings agencies be looking for in November? Look, I think, you know, if we have a look at these ratios, um, bear in mind, as you know, the, the COVID crisis caused a substantial deterioration in debt. And of course, you know, what the rating agency is going to be looking at is our debt projections. Essentially, credit rating agencies only do one thing, and that that is look at your credit worthiness or your likely ability to repay debt. Now, there are many factors which could tell them, you know, whether you're more or less likely. And of course, some of those are faster or slow economic growth rates. But it's actually the quantum of debt itself which is often the most important. And of course, you know, if you have a big increase in supply. So we, you know, did see a big jump up from South Africa's gross debt from um, about 63% of GDP to closer to the 80s because of the deterioration in revenue as a consequence of the very harsh lockdowns, but also, of course, as well, because there was some increased expenditure pressures. And what they're really going to be looking at now is, you know, how does our revision to GDP change these ratios? Countries around the world all revise their GDP. GDP regularly every five years is quite normal. And of course, you know, the fact that we've had a big upward revision, 11% larger for uh, the size of the economy, means that these ratios are obviously going to come off quite substantially. So we think the 2019 ratio will be revised to about 57%, was previously 63%. And why that's important, Jeremy, is it gives you a lower base to start off from. But for the current fiscal year, you know, we expect a projection of about 70% of GDP. And that's obviously lower than the 80% that was projected. The current fiscal year, obviously 2021-22. And if we look forwards into the following three years, we rise up to about 85 to 87. Now, Fitch obviously coming through recently and saying that the fact that debt's not stabilizing, it's still increasing, you know, that really talks to increasing the size of borrowings. And of course, that's what the agencies are going to be looking at. And also, of course, as well, our ability to control expenditure and in particular looking at civil servant salaries and wages. You know, while we saw maybe a one and a half percent increase in, in their actual salaries. If you add in all the extras, it comes closer to six percent. So it doesn't look like as much fiscal uh, consolidation was applied as perhaps may have been expected. And, you know, and that's really in terms of this current expenditure civil servants' wages. Those are some of the areas agencies will be looking at. I want to come back to this phrase structural reform because it rolls nicely off the tongue, doesn't it? But we we know that it's all about money in the kitty. So high commodity prices have helped the economy to an extent. There is a recovery, as we've spoken before. There's been a bit of a windfall in tax receipts. But all of that in the nature or the paradigm of the South African economy goes towards paying social grants. So when we talk about this infrastructure-led recovery, is there actually any money to pay for it? So I think perhaps not all of it goes to social grants. We've also, remember, had to see government chip in and pay into SASRIA. And that's, of course, worrying, you know, because of the riots that we had in July, substantial damage to the economy, and of course, the state insurer not having enough to cover all the claims. So that was also an unexpected um, large cost as well as the social grants, as you said, which were reinstituted after the riot action. And, you know, the, the government did say that even before the 
Right. They had made very substantial um, increases in revenue. Yes, more than expected, as you mentioned. Part of that's due to commodity prices, but also, of course, as well, uh, increased efficiency and tax collection. So we're expecting that there will be some further ability to have a bit of extra expenditure unless, of course, they use it instead to curtail borrowings. And this is the big issue, really. If government doesn't reduce its borrowing trajectory, we're going to see further credit rating downgrades, which mean higher higher interest rates for South Africa in the long term and short term. And you find yourself in a situation again where our government bond yields are high at 9% compared to the 6% they were in the 2000s when Thabo Mbeki was president. And obviously, we then had, you know, achieved an A-grade rating, a budget surplus, primary and fiscal surplus as well. So, so all of these things really mean that we've seen a deterioration. Finance is higher cost of borrowing. And of course, you know, the risk is that if we see a further credit rating downgrades, because our debt just doesn't get reined in, continues to grow. And that's what a negative outlook means on, on these rating um, views. Then, of course, you know, you find yourself in a situation where there's even less incentive for the private sector to invest and expand from an infrastructure perspective. And of course, you know, if government borrows even more um, to fund the infrastructure fund, we find ourselves in a worse situation. That's often known as crowding out. Uh, the Reserve Bank calls it. It's not an investment strike. It's just a very weak economy and crowding out. So maybe structural reforms, it's not necessarily only about infrastructure. It's also very much about government reducing its regulatory burden it has on the economy and, of course, improving the ease of doing business. These are the factors that really make a difference to accelerate business dynamism in the economy and, of course, then to increase employment. And that's really what we're after, you know, we talk about fast economic growth. It, it would seem to me that reducing borrowing would be the prudent course to follow instead of focusing too much on infrastructure development. But the latter also has an important political dynamic or paradigm attached to it. Yes, and I suppose, you know, what we're really seeing is in a year we could finally have seen some reduction in borrowing. There's, it's, a lot of it's been eaten up by the political dynamic, perhaps, you know, the increased um, populist expenditure. I think, you know, in South Africa, we find ourselves in a situation where because the ANC has lost so much popularity, because we've seen waning support from the ANC really since 2009, it's, it's really actually now these elections likely to lose the majority in a number of municipalities. That's, of course, the municipal election. The, the risk really there is that the ANC battles to push through its reforms that it wishes to make, even if they are pro-growth and pro-market reforms. And, you know, talking about these structural reforms, we've seen a lot of opposition coming from internally inside the party and, of course, externally from competing political parties to many of these structural reforms. So it's not just as simple as pushing them through. You know, we, we find ourselves in an economy led by a consensus, you know, consensus leadership. So there's a lot of agreement that needs to come through in parliament. And all of these factors do really fracture the ability to drive through these reforms that are needed by the economy and really just see us experience substantially faster economic growth that reduces unemployment down towards, you know, the 20% mark. And then lower. So let me put a final question to you then. Let's try and bring it home to our audience. For individuals, for investors, businesses, how might this budget affect them? What would they need to be looking out for? Well, interestingly, this is not a, a time of year when we see any, any tax changes. They may signal whether or not they're going to do tax changes, but they tend to come through in February. What we do often have this year, and I think we've forgotten it because there's been so many years, it's not decades since it's happened. At the MTBPS, we do often get a re-looking at inflation targets. And that's interesting because the Reserve Bank is not in charge of the inflation target. It's actually National Treasury which sets the inflation target. And of course, we've had a lot of noise coming out of the Reserve Bank about its wish to see a lower inflation 
target point, instead of at 4.5%, maybe at 4%. And that obviously then would see lower inflation prevail in South Africa. And of course, the expectation is we then could see eventually a lower long-term interest rate. So that's something unusual that might come out of this budget that people perhaps aren't expecting. We've also seen changes this time of year as well, um, again, in the medium-term budget policy statement, which relate to capital allowances, you know, easing of foreign exchange controls. So I think, you know, that those are some areas which perhaps we don't always remember. When people talk about the budget, we always think about expenditure and, of course, tax changes. But, of course, talking about tax, we've heard from government a number of times they're not necessarily looking to increase taxes. Our new finance minister himself has actually said that, and it will obviously cause a slow economic recovery. If you look at the last decade, the um, 2010s, we've obviously seen economic growth slow from above 3% to really about 0.1% you know, in 2019. And part of that was due to a very heavy increase in taxation throughout the economy, whether it's direct tax on individuals or corporates, so of course, indirect tax. And that also includes your higher tariffs for electricity, water, etc. Annabel Bishop, you always uh, reduce uh, complicated issues to their simple, basic component parts. And I appreciate that. Uh, Chief Economist at Investec, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jeremy. In just a moment, I'll talk to political commentator Dr. Soma Dodofikeni about the upcoming local government election, which come at a time when many local economies are teetering on the brink. But first a reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. The November 1 poll, the priorities and the challenges, and I'm wondering if we are at a crossroads politically in South Africa. I'm joined now by well-known and respected political commentator and analyst, Dr. Soma Doda Fikeni. Dr. Fikeni, welcome to you. The 2019-2020 Local Government Audit Report makes for some fairly disturbing reading. 27 of the 257 municipalities in South Africa receiving clean audits. This is what the local government election is all about. How bad is the situation, in your opinion? Well, I do think that it is bad enough as reflected in the audit report, but audit report is merely a symbol of some of the terrible things happening. It is not the full scope of everything. Those we receive from different news, for example, in the Northwest, There's one municipality where people barely have metric, but they are in senior management roles, which are dealing with water and technical services. Then you do have instances where you have not had water supply, and yet it is reported that some of those councillors and officials of the municipalities are involved in the business of supplying and even selling water to the very same people. So here, one, you do have corruption. You also have institutional weaknesses and people who are not fit for purpose. And also you do have politics, which have become so ruthless as a way of contesting for access to resources rather than servicing people, all combined. So the lowest and the closest level of government to the people, which is local government, is the one which is in bigger crisis than the other levels. You speak about the ability to do the job. Earlier this year, the acting minister in the presidency, Kumbudzo Nechabeni, revealed that only 1,500 municipal officials out of just over 2,700 met what was termed minimum 
competency levels. That's one of the reasons, I guess, as to why municipalities are failing to remain solvent, let alone deliver services. Given the election on November 1, is anything likely to change, do you think? Well, if there are changes, they are unlikely to be dramatic unless you do have such dramatic intervention from national and even provincial levels, and even institutional reconfiguration of how municipalities are funded and who gets appointed into those municipalities. You have seen that even when you change governments, it was in the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro, it was in Gauteng, Tuan, and so forth. Coalition arrangements, which looks like what we're heading towards, are very unstable, especially when there are marriages of convenience rather than marriages based on common values. And that in itself leads to a lot of bargaining, jostling for who gets deployed where, who gives which tender, who brings who to be deployed. That in itself doesn't really reflect positively on the outlook that may come in. But there are certain reforms that may later on bring some hope. If you create a single administration, And if the professionalization of public service document is accepted and adopted because it specifies what competencies are needed for which jobs, such that you cannot localize and custom-made some of these things for your own purpose in a certain small municipality somewhere. But there is also a need for us to reflect on whether you still need the local and the district municipalities and some of the metros, the way they are configured, uh, or whether you want to rethink, because some of them are just not financially viable. They live on subsidies from government because whatever comes from their own ratepayers doesn't come anywhere close to funding their operations. I want to rewind back to coalitions, if we can. You've just raised that issue. Uh, We know in the past that they result in constant infighting, and often the consequence of that is no service delivery. Do you think we can expect the possibility of more coalitions this time around? And maybe also tell us why you think they don't work in this country. Well, I do think that projections from all the opinion polls as well as the expanded number of people who are contesting, as well as the political parties which have come in, breaking away from the major parties such as the ANC and the DA, you would expect reduced majorities or even those who are pushed below 50%. So you may see proliferation of coalition arrangements. And the three major parties do not have a common ideological stance. So it means either working with the smaller parties, but if those parties are further reduced uh, away from 50% threshold, they would have to work with even a greater number of fragmented and disparate role players. And uh, the reason coalitions do not work in our situation is because the main aim initially was how to get the ANC out, but not what common values do we have. And that in itself worked to a certain extent, but the fragmentation, the differences came in, personalities came in, and that in itself, it looks like now going forward, smaller players in coalition arrangements may just be key rather than the big parties coming together. But even then, when you have smaller parties, 
they may not have the sway if you have a razor thin margin by which they pass. You would have to have 100% presence in every meeting to approve certain things. Dr. Fikeni, I've got two other quick questions to put to you. The first one is you've alluded to it in part. Many municipalities have enormous electricity and water debt. Realistically, can this ever be solved, this debt crisis? Well, I do think that it would be solved if all different tiers of government, as well as the ratepayers, were to come to a common understanding on how to provide, let's say, for the indigent and how to promote the culture of payment, and how to even put prepaid and incentivize it, because at times the non-payment and the accumulated debt, it's when you do have all the kinds of poor recording of what is needed, and some people end up with huge bills, and the municipalities can't even explain. And in an environment of corruption, some people may even pay kickbacks in order to be removed from that particular list. The illegal connections and the better planning in terms of spatial planning and infrastructure planning ahead of time. But one of the biggest problems in our case is that the big urban centers such as Gauteng keep receiving and you don't see decentralization of development into the rural areas, into the farm areas, into the smaller service towns. So that will keep on creating pressures because not only are these bigger centers receiving people from rural areas who are poor and destitute, they are also receiving unmanaged immigration from the rest of the continent, from South Asia, from the rest of the world. And they are thrown into the informal settlements And these spaces are the ones which are growing faster and they are bringing little or no revenue and there are no developmental nodes around those areas. And it's always a catch-up game. You will never have proper housing or even infrastructure provision when you have an unplanned settlement. And lastly, time and time again on this podcast, we've heard how small business is the panacea to all of our economic problems. In that respect, then, what do municipalities need to do in order to support and enable small business? Well, having bylaws that makes it easy to do business and being innovative to create such spaces for smaller businesses up to the informal businesses, because that's a huge area where people get involved in. If you simply criminalize it without understanding its dynamics and integrating it so that as it grows, it also can grow your revenue, then you'll forever have this kind of backlog tensions and you'll forever have the dominant players in a concentrated market being the major players, even in the township economies, in the rural economies and so forth. And this will further create tension between foreign nationals who sometimes will be blamed because they seem to survive and thrive better in some of these spaces of small businesses. Well, possibly the most important poll in South Africa's recent democratic history. Much to play for and the stakes are very high, as you've just heard from political commentator Dr. Soma Dodo Fikeni. Thank you very much for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for inviting me. 
Now, in every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that has been on our listeners' minds, and we'll do our very best to answer it. If you've got such a question, just go to investec.com forward slash now. That's investec.com forward slash N-O-W and share your conundrum with us. This week, we're going to ask Investec Global Head of Sustainability, Tanya Dos Santos, to tell us why COP26 matters. Here's some background. The United Nations convened the first Conference of the Parties, better known as COP, in 1995. Since then, world leaders, scientists and civil society luminaries have met 14 times, and it could be argued that these meetings have achieved very little given the current parlous state of our planet. But this Glasgow Climate Conference is being billed as, and I quote, Super cop. So should we put our skepticism aside and pay some attention to the outcome? How will the decisions made at COP26 impact you, your business, and your investments? Tanya Dos Santos, thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Let me start with this, with just a few days to go until COP kicks off. Can you tell us why this particular event is going to be any different from its predecessors? Jeremy, you know, there's a lot of naysayers who are talking about this COP being no different to the previous COPs. I remember attending COP in Durban about a decade ago, um, and no one had ever heard of COP. I mean, you know, the people around me questioned what it even stood for, and there really wasn't a huge, you know, media focus on it at the time. And I just think of how far we've come in those 10 years. So I do think there is going to be a huge shift from this COP. There are huge expectations. Um, And I think that shift is really going from a lot of talking. There's been a lot of talking at the previous COPs. Um, COP15 was a defining COP where they actually set what the destination is in terms of what we need to do. And I think Glasgow is really the COP where it's all about implementation. It's all about action. And you will be held accountable after this COP. We'll talk about the action in just a moment, but I was also at that Durban event a decade ago, and I remember then expectations were very high, and at the end of it, uh, there was an agreement that was stitched together, but it didn't really have that much impact. Same question this year round. We have very high expectations, but inevitably, not all of them are going to be met. Yes, um, I hope you're wrong. I mean, obviously, they won't all be met, but I sure hope that the majority of them are met. I think the difference now is you have such a huge huge swell um, in the private sector that it's no longer sitting just in a country space. So previously, there was a huge pressure on country commitments around COP. Um, Now you're seeing massive corporate commitments. And corporates are held accountable by their, you know, their shareholders and their investors. So, you know, we're feeling it in that space. Um, And they are holding us accountable for putting forth actual plans and not 30-year plans. What are you doing in the next five years, 10 years? And it's the same with countries. So South Africa has to put forward its NDC and they've got to come back with that plan every five years. So I do think that there is a lot more monitoring of, of those actions than there has ever been before. And that can only be good news. Let's come back to targets and expectations then. One hears a lot about the transition to net zero. What in layman's terms does that actually mean? And perhaps more importantly, what are the consequences if we don't reach that target? And if I'm not mistaken, that target is 2050. Yes, so so that aligns with what the Paris Agreement is. So at Paris COP, they agreed that we needed to limit our emissions to you know less than two degrees, but preferably 1.5 degrees. And net zero is essentially we have to get there by 2050. 
if we want to be on this path where we, we basically don't, uh, what one of my colleagues says, we don't fry ourselves. So really, it's about the emissions that we're emitting that's causing this, this heating of the atmosphere. So when we talk about net zero, it's very it's actually different to carbon neutral. Carbon neutral means, you know, that you are not having any impact, that you neutralize the impact you're having. Net zero, it's important to actually reduce your emissions. So we can't just go on creating these emissions and then go and plant a whole lot of trees. Um, or in South Africa, we plant speckworm because it's a great carbon sequestrator. We can't just go and offset them somewhere. We actually have to reduce them first. Um, and net zero is where you are almost there in terms of reducing and you're not creating any more emissions. So that's the global picture. What would the consequences be to Africa and South Africa if we don't hit that target? Well, you know, I think you're starting to see the consequences already. The money is flowing to where there are more carbon responsible activities. So, so we have to start moving with the rest of the world. Granted, you know, developing world did not create the emissions that we're now trying to offset, or the majority of the emissions uh, that are out now were created by the developed world through their growth paths. Um, now, emerging markets are not there yet. So there is this dilemma between how do we, you know, remove and shift from fossil fuels when we're still trying to grow our economies. But essentially what it requires is a acceptance that we need to have a transition. That transition needs to be clean, but it also needs to be just and equitable. And we're not going to do that on our own. We need developed world funding to get there. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I want to play a clip from our Minister of Environmental Affairs, Barbara Creasy. Our country has adopted a significantly more ambitious nationally determined contribution. The upper level of our NDC is compliant with Paris Agreement's two-degree target. The lower level is compliant with the 1.5-degree target. And where we get to on the spectrum really depends on the extent to which developed countries can honor their commitments in the Paris Agreement to support developing countries in their transition to lower carbon economies and more climate resilient societies. She states that South Africa has laid out some very ambitious NDCs, but we can't achieve them, as you say, without financial support from richer nations. What forms then should that support come in? So you're going to see a number of different types of instruments, types of funding coming through. We're seeing already a plethora of ETFs and climate ETFs in particular, where you're trying to specifically focus on environmental impacts. Corporates coming out with their own net zero targets. So you will see that financing from the first world being directed to companies that have the same aligned ambition. Um, And at a country level, you're seeing how there's even talk of debt relief if you meet certain climate KPIs and ambitions. So it's going to come through in a number of ways. Some of the negative consequences are um, in Europe, for example, where they're going to put a price on carbon imports. So any products that we, South Africa, export to Europe will now be more expensive for European countries. And then they're going to decide, well, maybe we're going to get it from a less carbon intensive country rather than South Africa. So it does start impacting our export capacity. So in conclusion, then, what, in your opinion, is the best outcome from COP for South Africa? 
think, Jeremy, I think this is a huge opportunity for us to position South Africa as a destination of choice when it comes to climate finance. We have so many incredible opportunities around solar, around wind, um, around different types of renewable projects. And I really think that's what we have to focus on. We have to position South Africa as the best of in this space. We need to prove that we can monitor, track um, these types of activities, and we need to show the transparency of what we are already doing um, and what we are committing to doing going forward. So I see it as a big investment opportunity for the country. I appreciate the outline. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Tanya Dos Santos, Investex Global Head of Sustainability. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Do join us again on the 10th of November as we continue the discussion on money trends shaping your world. We've lined up another great panel of experts. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.